So we're continuing in our third volume of Matthew. Tonight we're going further into chapter 13, dealing with the parables that Matthew has arranged together in chapter 13. Here's a little bit of a schedule of what we're doing. We're going to do chapter 13 for the next couple of weeks and hopefully finish out all of the parables by next week that he's got in chapter 13. We'll then take on chapter 14 in one week, if we can, if we can do that in one week. And then, Jeremy's going to take the helm on the 19th and walk us through chapter 15. That's kind of a roadmap of where we're going. Look for those things coming up. Let's, uh, just real briefly, here's what we did last week. We looked at the parable of the sower. And just to refresh your recollection, the sower was likely himself. He alludes to it. But secondarily, it could be anyone who is throwing the seed, the word, So the seed is the word, and then we looked at four separate soils last week. The road, the rocky soil, the soil that's among the thorns, and good soil. So you could summarize it this way and say last week's parable was the same seed thrown into different soils. Tonight, we're going to be looking at kind of the opposite. We're going to be looking at the same soil, but two different seeds in another agricultural parable that Jesus gives us. So open up to chapter 13, if you will. We're going to start in verse 24. This is the parable of the weeds. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, First collect the weeds, and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now the explanation is given a few verses down, but before we get there, anyone want to take a shot at why Jesus is telling this parable? Not just the explanation, but why would Jesus tell this particular parable? What is he addressing? What is he trying to teach? At this time, Jesus has been announcing the kingdom. He starts his ministry by telling people about this kingdom. And people are coming to hear the good news of the kingdom. That something is going to change. But if you're following Jesus around, one of the questions you might have at this time is, when is it going to change? Or, maybe more succinctly put the way we would, we would might say it more succinctly like, why isn't it changing already? If you look at the historical background at this time, there was a group of people, you've probably heard about them numerous times, called the Zealots. They wanted to usher in some sort of kind of earthly revolution right away to overthrow the Roman yoke. They just wanted to get rid of the Romans if they could, kind of reestablish Jewish rule for the Jewish people. They were looking for more expedient kind of ways. There are also other prophets that have come before that were announcing a more immediate type of thing. And some people were probably starting to think, Is this the same kind of thing? Are you talking about a kingdom that's going to begin now? So that backdrop follows the parable a little bit. 
All right? Let me point out a couple things before we look at Jesus' explanation. The words that the wheat sprouted and formed heads, literally to bear fruit. So again, we have more parables that we see and more places in Scripture where there's this concept of bearing fruit, something that we kind of don't hear much about. Or when we do, we don't know where to put it in context. Jesus constantly seems to be looking at things that bear fruit. And if you go through and just read the Gospels and look at that lens and look at the number of times that he talks about bearing fruit, seems to be a theme of his that he likes. Here's something else to look at. There's a specific new actor in this parable that wasn't present in the previous parables and the parables around it. That new actor in this parable is Satan. Now here, he starts to set it up. Where did, this, where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked, do you want us to pull them up? No, leave them there. So we're starting to get a sense of why Jesus is telling this parable. Okay? But let's look at the explanation, starting in verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. Notice he's not explaining it to everybody. Same principle that we used last week when we talked about how he kind of kept the parables and the explanation for his disciples. He left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. Reference to himself. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. There's that closing refrain again, same one we looked at last week. He who has ears, let him hear. All right, there's Jesus' explanation. He at least identifies the actor's who they are and what they represent in his parable. And he even makes a connection. He explains that this is what it's going to be like. So what is this parable about? Now that we've got the explanation and the parable and all the actors identified, what is Jesus trying to communicate in this parable? Let's be clear, because last week the seeds in the parable of the sower was the word. So if you look at it carefully, he says... The good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. So the seed is no longer the word anymore. And who is doing the sowing here? The son of man. So basically what he's saying is, God is the one who's doing the sowing. God sowed good seed. Who sowed bad seed, according to this parable? The evil one. The devil sowed the bad seed right next to it. He says an enemy did this. There's this like endless debate that goes on among people who comment on this parable about was this even a known practice? Would anybody actually do this? 
somebody's uncovered an old ancient Roman law that prohibits this, sowing weeds among wheat. So maybe it did happen enough that somebody came up with a law that says you couldn't do it. But either way, it's just a parable. He's setting up a story. So what's the import? What's so, what's so interesting about showing a parable where God sows good seed, the devil comes in and sows bad seed to kind of screw up the crop, and they grow up next to each other in a manner that's indistinguishable, at least initially. Yeah? That don't always be good or bad in the world. It's just a condition of the way things are. And it seems to be set up that way. I mean, there's some responsibility somewhere. I mean, if you're going to go that far and say, why even allow the devil you know, to sow the seed in the first place? But I mean, that's, that's taking the parable too far. It probably is taking the parable too far to ask, why even let the devil in? Or stated another way is, does the parable imply that God does not have the power to prevent the enemy from sowing seed? That's probably where we said, if you read too much into a parable, you've kind of skated off the meaning of the parable. What else could he be addressing? I mean, I think this parable is kind of timeless in its application. Because it seems like if you go back to the parable, the servants specifically ask, do you want us to remove the weeds? And he says, no. So it seems like it would definitely operate about that expectation that people had about, wait a minute, what is this kingdom you keep talking about? Because I don't see things radically changing. Now you could say, hey, I just got here, right? But we could say that today. Hey, what is this victory? What is this kingdom that you've ushered in? Like, things don't look great. I don't see peace. I don't see the kinds of things that were supposed to be ushered in. Where are those things? So that's why I think the parable is actually pretty timeless in its application, Because a lot of us could look and say, yeah, why don't you weed out the bad and the evil from among those things that you sowed that were good? And we might even ask that question that the parable can't really answer, like, why did you even allow it to happen in the first place? We've taken that question on in other contexts, so we won't go into it here. But regardless how we got here, we understand there are weeds and there is wheat and you're refusing to remove the weeds. And that seems to be one of the reasons the parable is being told. Notice that he talks about sons of the kingdom. The sons of reference means those who belong to the kingdom. So when he's talking about the righteous at the end, he's connecting them like, how are you righteous? Because you belong to the kingdom. So that is not something that you do. That is something that you become. Jeremy. Jeremy. I think it's interesting in terms of application because I, I mean, there's probably numerous, great, numerous ways to read this, but one way is to say, well, there will always be evil in the world, so who cares, right? You could definitely see how you know, one could, could read it or could interpret it that way. I, you know, it's interesting that it doesn't really identify what the weeds are. It doesn't actually identify what evil is or what... The act, you know, the activities of, you know, what it means to be weed-like, unless what it means to be weed-like is to not bear fruit, in which case there's a lot more weeds in the church today than there's weed. Well, let's talk about weeds for a moment. First of all, the word that we translate weeds is actually a word. 
probably more literally, probably the English equivalent is darnel, which is a weed that looks just like wheat at its inception, very difficult to distinguish. Okay, so that's one of the reasons that his audience would have said, oh, if somebody sows that weed, that's particularly malicious because you can't really distinguish it. It's not like the weed is growing in one color, the other one's easy to identify or has some strange leaf. They look very similar. Also, this type of weed grew very deep root systems that wrapped itself around the root system of the wheat so that if you pulled it up, you probably would pull up the wheat as well. That's just an interesting historical fact about the parable. But he also does describe what the weeds are because he says the weeds are the son of the evil one. Again, son of meaning belonging to, so those who subscribe to the evil one. That's a reason that we can't particularly say that in the church we've got weeds and wheat right next to each other because, well, it's not that it's inconceivable that there are people in the church who don't belong to Christ. But let's be careful that we're not saying people who belong to Christ but are somehow goofy become weeds. This really is, you either belong to the kingdom or you belong to the evil one. Again, we can't read too much into the parable to try to understand, well, tell me who that is. Would that guy be weeds or not? I think the general principle, though, is you're going to belong to one or the other, the kingdom, or you're going to belong to the kingdom of the of the God of this world or the evil one or whatever you want to call it. I think what's interesting about his explanation, by the way, are these words, too. You know, a lot of times we debate, like, what is the coming judgment going to be like? You know, is all the fire and brimstone kind of stuff, is that just all like a revelation concept? But, again, if you just walk through Jesus' parables and count the times he uses fire, here he uses fiery furnace as well, weed out, he loves the term weeping and gnashing of teeth, which was an allusion to the separation from God, a place where you're separated away that was known even before Jesus used this term. That was kind of the allusion he's making. He seems to constantly refer to a bad place. And it seems like it's separated, and if you listen to Jesus' parables, seems a little hot at times. Uh, you want to take too far, right? I think it would take the parable too far, and there are, in fairness, there are commentators, I believe, who say straight out, this isn't a reference to eternal judgment and fire. He's just, it's part of the parable's device. I don't totally agree with that, though. It, he uses it enough times in enough parables that it's one of the most consistent things across the parables, is the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth and the allusions to fire. Just point out that it's there, Okay. Let's go a step further and just say, these are things that I see coming out of this. First, righteousness and evil coexist until the end in this parable. This fall, we are going to do a series on evil and suffering. But it is interesting that Jesus uses this parable at its main central point to show that they will coexist until the end. And it is an allowance by God to let that happen. The servants are ready to get out there and harvest earlier if necessary to get the weeds out of there. And God, in this parable, the person who sowed the good seeds, holds them back and says no. Second, I think evil is only completely eradicated at the end, at the time of the harvest, which in this case is the judgment. I think that should be instructive for us because some of us, and some of the people listening to Jesus' parable are wondering, why is it still going to be business as usual on earth in the meantime? Shouldn't things be radically different now that this kingdom exists? And the answer appears to be, it will be radically different at the end. 
some people could say that a subtlety in the parable is that evil cannot be completely removed without risk of harm to the righteous. I don't think that's the main point of the parable. I'm not even sure that Jesus was trying to make that point directly. But it is something that's subtle and in the parable that the sower is concerned that pulling up the weeds too early will harm the wheat. Now, the reason I think that might be going too far is you're going to say, wait a minute, so you're saying God is in heaven saying, let's keep the evil in the world right where it is because that's better for my people. I think most of us would say, I reject that. But there's a subtlety in that where some wiser person might say, that's the world that we live in and that's the consequence of sin and the fall and it's never going to be eradicated until the end. Jill? Agree with that. Yeah, Philip? That whole part of the parables troubles me because I feel like I see the other points you make that, that I feel like Jesus is making through the parable, but it also feels like the parable is leading up to this point of like, oh, okay, I planted seed. Oh, someone planted weeds. Okay, that's terrible. Like, oh, well, let's go pull them up. No, 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 don't even pull them up. Like, it seems to be like addressing this problem of evil, but not answering it. Just sort of saying, well, yes, evil exists, and we're just going to take care of it at the harvest at the end of the age. Why is it really answered? And I think that's fair. Like, it's just not just addressed here, but like, it just seems weird that God doesn't have the ability to do that. And he's going to do it at the end anyway, and so we're just going to separate them. Let me address a couple of things you said. I actually agree with those. First, I think that you're right to struggle with it. Like, it doesn't answer it. And the problem of evil is something we should really struggle with at a very deep level. It's caused all sorts of people to come up with even new theologies just to try to explain it, okay? So continue to struggle. Even when we do our series, we're going to walk out even more mind-numb than before and struggling. The other thing is it doesn't address why it happens. I think if this parable addresses anything, it just addresses, well, when will it take place? This parable, the main point is, and the end. It's, it's more about timing. Because that's what people are wondering. Like, so is something going to happen now? And he's saying, no, it's going to continue like this. So that will trouble us some more. Except that I'll just slightly disagree when you said, well, well, he could do it at the end so he could do it earlier. I think God could do anything he wanted at any time. In this parable, though, in the limitations, the reason he can do it at the end is because when everything is fully grown, it now reveals itself as either wheat that has borne fruit and has the wheat stock or whatever it is, versus the weed that looked like weed at first, but now clearly isn't. So it's a great use of that example because he knows that everybody listening will go, oh, right, yeah, at the end we would know. And that's the point of his parable, right? And God at the end will do this. It's just a parable. I think God will know always. He can know in advance. He's, at a, in my mind, an eternal now. There is no time for God. And in addition to all that, it is possible that he could have done it earlier. But I think that goes back to not without removing us from the place that we are, which is under the curse of sin and the fall. I mean, in other words, the consequence of sin and the fall is death, evil, all the things that are around us, suffering. We know that that gets removed when the curse of sin is removed. He, we're not, he's not removing the curse of sin in this life. Well, okay, I 
I agree with everything he said. Uh, he's going to like harvest at the end of the age. Like it's said, that's what it's going to do. And so, I mean, I, I agree that I don't think he can, in some sense, because he has a plan. He's going to do it then at the end of the age. That he cannot do it earlier. Like, it's theoretically in a weird sense, but in the same idea, yeah, he can. I, I don't think. There's anything keeping him back? And he said, "Well, that would be removing us from the curse." He said, "Well, whatever he would do early, like he would do then anyway." And so, like the points would still be the same regardless. Absolutely. So let's agree. If God wanted to just end this early, He would just say, "I come back now. The return is here. It's over. Right? It's the end of the age because He decides that day. The Father knows the day on which the end of the age will come." And now Christ's victory is, the next part is, is instituted, and this world is over, and we move to the judgment, and he separates the wheat and the weeds, or us and the other people, whatever, and then we move on to a place of no suffering, no evil, no death, all that kind of stuff. So again, it is timing, like you said, and you said he could do it earlier. Let's look at that. If you could open up to Second Peter, if you have it, if you don't, here it is on the screen. In chapter 3, Peter addresses the issue of this question that Philip just asked. Like, okay, well, why couldn't you do it earlier? I mean, whatever you're going to do, whatever it takes for you to institute the plan, press the button and start the wheels in motion, let's do it sooner. So 2 Peter 3, starting, I'm going to read verses 3 to 4, 8, 9, and 15. Because if I cut and paste, it'll make my point better. <laughs> no, just because the, the, the thought is kind of interrupted by some other things, but you can read the whole chapter if you want. Here's what Peter writes. He says, First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming he promised? You might even read it as, when is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Same old stuff, nothing's changing. He's not coming back. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. So Peter later addresses this very point as people are starting to get a little bit weary because as people have mentioned in here, it is true that many people in the first century, especially Jesus' followers, lived with this anticipation that it was, going to, it was going to be any day now. Paul was even under this influence of this thought that any day now Jesus is coming back. And so even as Peter is living and writing, somebody is questioning, and maybe more than a few, when is this going to happen? Why has it not happened already? And here we are, we get to even do it even more. Like, is this ever going to happen? I mean, we've, we've, we've crossed almost 2,000 years, and where, where are you? Is this just a story we're starting to repeat? Is it really going to happen? Well, thank God it didn't happen before 1969. 
because then I get to miss out on spending my eternity with the Lord. Thank God it didn't happen for what? Some of you, like, what, 1997? What were you guys not? Just kidding. So, in one way to look at this, his patience, as Second Peter says, leads to salvation. It leads to our membership in the kingdom. I think God's desire is that every day more and more people fill this present and future kingdom to come. I told you a number of weeks ago that I was reading the statistic that I still can't wrap my mind around. That every day in China, 16,000 believers come to Christ. I mean, like I have to go back every once in a while and make sure I didn't read the word week or month. You know, that it really is day. That's an amazing new addition of membership into the kingdom that happens. And that's just in one country. That's partially why the when is being delayed. But of course, in the meantime until this harvest actually comes and the judgment takes place, we're living in a place where wheat and weeds live side by side with the weeds strangling the wheat. Jeremy? I think it's strange, though, to say when God came back early, it wouldn't really be God coming back early. It would just be God coming back when God came back. It doesn't, make, it doesn't help but make more sense. I mean, yes, it's nice that we're all here, but... Yes, uh, that also means that there are X number of people who won't be for just the logical point. They just weren't, weren't, weren't born. I think that's a true statement. And you're right, God is not bound by time, but from our perspective, he is being patient and he's continuing. What about the, him not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everyone? I believe that happens in all of our lifetime. I mean, take somebody right now, let's take me and another friend of mine that were born in the same year. And as we continued, if he had come at year 10, I probably would have gotten in. But maybe not my friend. Maybe it took him until year 30. It's difficult. Those are trite explanations. But the answer that Peter is trying to communicate is that even, and remember, in Peter's perspective, he's not thinking it's going to take 2,000 years. He's thinking that it might be another 10, 20 50. I mean, he doesn't know, but he's still thinking it's going to be relatively soon. And he's thinking there are people living right now that are hearing the word for the first time and becoming part of the kingdom, and if he cuts it off right now, that would be it. So if he is patient, some of those people then alive would have more time to hear the word and hear the good news and repent. Those words still hold true, but it shouldn't, it, it shouldn't answer it for us. It's still troubling because this only answers one question. Why is it taking so long? And it doesn't really answer that fully. It's just saying there is a purpose behind being patient. Yeah. I kind of I kind of struggle with a lot of the like pastors and, and speakers and Christians. They they're always like, oh, we're looking forward to the day that Jesus comes back. We're looking forward to the end of times where we can spend forever with Jesus. But I feel like I, I kind of take the place of like you know I would like to see more people come to Christ. So I kind of don't want them to come back. I kind of would be like, hey. You know, take your time because that way more people are going to be able to, you know, like be with us in heaven or be with us in in, in glory. And I, I don't know. Like I just I think that yeah, it's good to go. Okay, yeah, the Lord's going to come back and this and that. But like you said, you know, if, if he would have come back before nineteen whatever, then you know we wouldn't be here. So it's like for me, I'm like, well, I would like to give other people the opportunity or like to see other people come to Christ just as much as how we came to Christ. So why is there that struggle that people wanting Christ to come back so much, which 
I feel like it's more or less we should be ready for when Christ comes back. But that desire, I feel like, you know, it's like, yeah, it's, it's cool, but, you know, we're all going to eventually die in 100 years anyway. You know what I mean? So we might as well, I don't know, look at it from a different point. Okay, let me offer you these perspectives. First, Paul does command us to seek the place where Christ is. So there's a direct commandment in Scripture for us to focus and seek to live with God. All right? I know a lot of us don't desire that, if we're really honest. Like, we're pretty happy with our life. It's only when we're, like, hungry, dying, suffering, ill, that we start to really long for heaven. But that's a problem with our sinful perspective on where we really should be. We think this life is okay. We're good here. You know, I can't imagine my life without my music collection. I think if I go to heaven, it's not going to be there. I'm totally stressed out. Like, I'm not sure I like it, right? Right, like, a lot of stuff in heaven. Like, even some, I just think there's going to be a lot of songs that I have that probably not playing on whatever radio station you have, you know? Sinfully, and I'll be honest, sinfully, we desire to be here more than we should. There's commandments in Scripture that we want to be in this place where we're going to be in the presence of the Lord. If we really are serious about knowing God, being in His presence, talking to Him, and seeing Him face to face, whether it's the Father or the Son or whatever it is in heaven, if we're serious about those things, we should want to go. We don't. Let's put that point there. But... When we did our series on the Lord's Prayer, when we pray, thy kingdom come, we're praying two things that are intention. I want to be there where your kingdom come, where your rule comes over me. But I also want you to usher more people into your kingdom. You're praying for both. You're praying that kind of thing. And you see that in places where the Great Commission is given to us to go with urgency to the rest of the world, while at the same time there are other verses that command us to wait as if it's the last day and be ready at any time to go. We're supposed to live in that place where we do want to see more and more people coming in and feeding and clothing and loving and preaching and teaching and all those things, but at the same time, we should be longing to get out of here. And if we were really honest, I mean, this world sucks, except that we numb ourselves so much and we, we medicate enough with all the stuff we have and all the things that we do that we kind of can live here. But I'm sure there's more people in the world that would like to get out of here than would like to stay. Most of them are in countries where they have very little and can't make it to the next day. There's one very profound thing that Peter said or in Second Peter that I just thought was like great. He's talking about what you see here at the bottom of the screen. He talks about just as our dear brother Paul says. The next verse says this. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking of these things in all matters. And then he says one of the most obvious things in all of Scripture. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. You think? We've only been fighting about them forever. Like, what did he mean by that? So... Even Peter couldn't get everything Paul was saying. Let's look at one more parable really quickly because it ties into what we just talked about. We're not changing subjects. It's the same thing. It's very short. Very short parable. This is the parable of the net. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. The historical context here is maybe you've even seen this kind of fishing where two boats kind of come out and drag a big drag net, and they capture all the fish they can. Or a fisherman would throw the net out, and a number of people on either side would just drag the net and catch fish that way. The parable says, when it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous, and throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, fire, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. But the main point of the parable is, 
a separation will take place. When? At the end of the age. So we catch everything we can. They coexist in a net together. They go at the end of the age, and we see. One interesting thing in this parable is the word all kinds of fish. Commentators point out, actually, in literal translation, would read all races of fish. So if we're the fish, it's interesting that even in the parable, there's this weird wording. It doesn't make sense to call fish different races, but the word for human races is inserted into the parable, all races of fish, not species, but races. So apparently just an interesting illusion that Jesus maybe is deliberately making that all of them are caught up and then they're separated at the end. And that's important because he's speaking primarily to a Jewish audience. And that means that it will be a judgment of all the people in the world. There's this interesting quote I want to end with. I was reading as I was researching this. F.D. Bruner says this, especially about this last part about weeping and gnashing of teeth and this fiery furnace kind of and fire idea that keeps coming up. He does make the connection, at least Bruner does, in a way to hell. But he says this, Hell is not a doctrine used to frighten unbelievers. It is a doctrine used to warn those who think themselves believers. And the reason I found that so profound is because when we look at these two parables of wheat and weeds and the two types of fish, we're very tempted to think maybe it's just sons of righteousness versus sons of evil. But as Jeremy pointed out earlier, you can also read it as there are some people who think themselves to be righteous, who think themselves to be sons of the kingdom and daughters, but may not be. We encountered this difficult teaching earlier in Matthew when we struggled with the passage about, truly I say to you, not everybody who comes to me and says, Lord, Lord, it's a very similar teaching, one that has been misinterpreted, thought about, one that shakes us every time we read it, I encourage you to go back and listen to that study again if you're still struggling with that issue because it's one of those teachings of Jesus that every time you come back to it, you struggle with it all over again. You never really put it into a box and finish it because it's such a difficult teaching to deal with. But I find that it's also applicable because I love Bruner's quote. Just to put a fine point on it, whether or not Jesus is directly talking about a judgment that involves a fiery hell or just some place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, the point that Bruner makes is hell really shouldn't be just to frighten people into believing. It really should be to frighten people who think they're believers. And he gets that by looking at the subtleties of these two parables. That there are people who probably think they're wheat and there may be weeds. They're indistinguishable sometimes. There are people that think they're good fish, but they're really bad. What is bad fish? In the context of fishermen, I mean, you know, what's a bad fish? Like a fish that does something wrong? Bad fish was the wrong kind of fish, fish that you couldn't eat, fish that was not useful to you. That's the kind of fish you threw back, or in this case, put into the furnace. So again, a reference in a way to fruitfulness, to something that's useful in the kingdom. It's something that should cause reflection for us. So just something to leave there. Next week, we finish off a couple more parables in chapter 13, and we're done with it. Let's, uh, let's pray and close up. Jesus, I pray that your method of using parables would be something that we would adopt. Lord, I pray that these stories would guide us, that these truths illustrated would kind of sink deep into our hearts and start to resonate. 
Lord, I thank you for a place that we could just meet to talk about you. And tonight I confess that I love this world too much and I'm pretty happy being here. That I don't seek you or long to be with you. I don't long to be in a place that I'm happy with the small tasks that you've given me. That I find my identity in those things. That I find my identity in this world. And I'm just, as long as I'm not sick or dying, I'm okay to be here. And Lord, that's not the kind of world that you set up. But Lord, while we are here, let us do the things that you commanded. To be ready to be with you and at the same time to be ready to serve you in this kingdom. And if you are patient, that more people would come to know you. We pray for that tonight. That wherever they are in the world right now, that more people would come to know you. Pray this in your name. Amen.